Welcome back to the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Will George and Mark Wiley. We're here with episode 66, Common Sense Pitching, A Day at the Yard with Wiley and Will. It's the seventh rendition of it. Guys, it's been received very well by our audience. We've had some great guests on, uh, all, all pitchers up to this point, and I'm glad to have a – I know it's a catcher. I've always felt outnumbered on the show a little bit being a hitter, but glad to have Jesse Levis on the show. And Mark, why don't you introduce Jesse to our audience? Uh, yeah, we're so pleased to have Jesse. Uh, you know, I was with Jesse in Cleveland in his early years in the big leagues and, uh, you know, have have watched his whole career, um, which is has expanded from being a – in 1996, he was he led all major league catchers in fielding percentage. Uh, he only had six errors in his major league career, um, which was nine years in the big leagues. Uh, he's a uh, he's a he was inducted into the Philly Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Um, he started out his career with a scholarship to North Car- University of North Carolina. In 1989, he was drafted fourth round by the Cleveland Indians. Spent 16 years as a professional, nine in the major leagues. Uh, he was with the Cleveland Indians from 92 to 95 and again in 99. And then he was with the Milwaukee Brewers, 96 to 98 and again in 91. Looks like he didn't burn any bridges. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the minor leagues, he also played the Cleveland, Milwaukee, Tampa, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and the Mets. He retired in 04, became a roving catching instructor for the Mets uh, in five. And then in six, he was a minor league manager with the Mets. Then he became a scout uh, with Milwaukee Brewers, uh, the Boston Red Sox, and then for 10 years with the Philadelphia Phillies. So he has a vast background as a player, uh, instruction, and scouting. And we're really pleased to have you, Jesse. Uh, thanks, Will, Mark. Uh, really a pleasure to be here and uh, get to get to talk about the catching aspect of the the battery of the uh, pitcher and catcher. So really excited to be here. You know, for me, the, you know, the catcher pitcher relationship is everything for a pitcher. Um, if you look at uh, playoff teams, they all have uh, catchers that communicate well and do great things with the pitching staff. Um and we're going to delve into some of the things that you learned throughout your career. And, you know, being a backup major league catcher for such a long time is really one of the hardest things to do, Jesse. You know, how did you persevere through all the years in the minor leagues and finally become a, a, a certified count on major league backup catcher? Well, Mark, I mean, it, it was tough for me early in Cleveland uh, being behind Sandy Elmore and, and Tony Pena and, and uh, two great veteran catchers at the time. Um, I played plenty of winter ball in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, um, to stay focused and stay sharp. Um, I really believed in myself, Mark. I, I saw guys around the league, and I saw other catchers and that I knew I was better than. Um, that kept me going. Um, I, loved, I loved to play the game. I loved to work at it. I loved the, the camaraderie of the team, my teammates. Um, it was just a, it was just a, a journey for me. It wasn't a sprint. Um, like I would say at the beginning of my career, they gotta, they gotta rip the uni off me, you know, to get me out of this game. So, and that's basically what happened at the end of my career. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I always believed in myself and my ability. I knew I was a good catcher. I knew I was a good defender. I could throw and I, and I hit left-handed. 
and um, I knew my time was going to come. And when it did, I needed to uh, to seize that moment, which I did, you know, for a little while there in the big leagues, which was awesome. Yeah, I uh, I just won the way in. I go way, way, way back with Jesse. I was still playing in the minor leagues, and in the falls, I would go over to uh, Brooklyn American Legion, and we had had Joe, Joe Barth on our story, which is the legendary Legion program. And here's Jesse, a kid from Northeast Philadelphia, as a 14-year-old coming over and working out over there because it was an elite program and Joe was always trying to help guys get better. And I believe Howie Freiling, who went on to have a long baseball career as a player at North Carolina and then in the Mets system and then a long time major league scout. These two kids would come over there and 14, 15 years old, blend in. Jesse used to catch me in the bullpen as a young kid and he was really good. And then, I was fortunate enough to be reunited with him uh, as a minor league pitching coach. And uh, I'll let Jesse tell you about his career and, and, and I'll weigh in on why he ended up being a big leaguer, why I believe so as well. well that's, that's funny, Will. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, I think some of the things, uh, you know, one of the most important things in baseball is the relationship with a catcher and a pitcher. And uh, I just was wondering, you know, how did you go about building that relationship, Jesse? Well, well, Mark, I mean, I, I always uh, befriended my staff. I mean, I always like made sure I communicated with the Latin pitchers and I tried my best with my, my Spanglish um, to communicate in Spanish. And they really appreciated that. Um, and because there was, you know, half of my staff sometimes was, was Latin um, but I would always try to befriend them and always try to hang out with them. In the minor leagues, it was a lot easier. You know, nobody was married and there was, you know, not millions of dollars floating around. So we were we were always together, basically, on bus rides. And we would always talk the game. You know, we would talk pitching and, you know, what works for you, what's best, you know. And, and it really helped me as much as it helped them as far as the communication goes. Um, when we got on the field, it was all business and – and, and they trusted me, which was important. You know, once you have that trust in your pitcher, you, you can get a lot, lot, a lot more out of them. But um, I tried to, I tried to hang out with them as much as I could. You know, and 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 some of my best friends in the game were pitchers uh, going through the minor leagues and major leagues. So it, it was, a, it was a great ride. You know, it's you know that, those it's so important with those relationships. You know, to be able to to know how you you get a big pitch out of a pitcher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how did you go about, like, at crunch time uh, to to either verbally or physically or whatever you did to communicate to the pitcher that, you know, to get a big pitch out of the guy at a crucial time? You know, Mark, Mark I, would, I would go out to the mound in crucial situations and talk it over because we had game plans and we planned before games and went over hitters. But, you know, it could have been a reliever that I needed a big pitch from or or late in the game. Uh, I remember an instance with Doug Jones going out to the mound in Milwaukee and, and we really needed a, a big pitch on Carlos Delgado. And I walked out to the mound and he said, uh, Jesse, where are we going to dinner tonight? And some guys just have no pulse, you know, out there and, and are very relaxed in certain situations. And other guys are real tense, you know. 
So you need to know what personality is on the mound that day and in that specific moment. And um, I used to use a lot of positive body language, like pumping my fists. And, you know, when a guy made a great pitch, I would exaggerate my glove and really hold it out there and say, great job. And, you know, I got made fun of a lot from some of my teammates. They used to imitate me holding pitches for them. But um, I used to get a lot out of my pitchers that way. I, I thought it really helped. And being positive all the all the time, never bringing up the word ball or, or walk, you know, just keeping that out of our uh, vocabulary. So I got a lot out of my guys, Mark, and, and it meant a lot to me. So it probably meant as much to me as it did them because I was, I was pretty wiped out at the end of games, usually mentally as well as physically. You know, it's, uh, you know, in today's world where they limit the trips to the mound <laughs> and pitchers have to come and face three guys. Yeah. Uh, to me, as a pitching coach, that lessens the game right. because there's crucial times when you need to go out there. And those trips aren't what slows the game down. You know, it's the hitter getting in the batter's box, pitchers taking too much time between pitches, uh, commercials on television. You know, it's not trips to the mound. And I think I think they took they got that wrong because, uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that there were many times when I had to go out to try to do everything I could to get the guy to make the pitch, get on the same page with the pitcher and catcher. And I used to always ask, if I asked him, can you throw a sinker arm side down and in on this right-handed hitter? If there was any hesitation, then I'd come and we'd, we'd figure out a plan together to where he would be invested. Um, but if he said, yeah, I can do that, say, okay, we're, we're on, we're on. That, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get a double play ball with that pitch right here. You know, it's all, you're right. You always finish with a positive note. And when right. you go out to the mound as a pitching coach, it may be a little different than a catcher because you're catching every pitch. When we go out, sometimes the manager will go down, say, calm him down a little bit, Mark. So I'll be walking out there and I haven't got anything to say yet. So I walk real slow out there to figure out what I can say, what positive thing I can do so we can have a good conclusion to what we want to have happen. Um, you know, I, I learned a long time ago, you can't, like you said, you never have negative stuff. Like, whatever you do, don't throw this guy a high fastball. <laughs> right. I <was> like, <laughs> I had that happen. A manager said that one time to a pitcher. Guy gave up a bomb the next pitch. <laughs> and I asked him what he said to him. And he told me, and I go, uh, not the right thing to say. You tell him what you want him to do, not what you don't want to have happen. Uh, and he learned a lesson himself that time. But, you know, catchers pitcher relationship. It drives me nuts now, Jesse, when I watch games and I don't see the catchers invested. I, I see the biggest pitch of the game we made. They do no body language, nothing right. to help. Man, I took it as hard as the pitcher, Mark, when a guy gave it up, man. I mean, it really hurt me. So, I mean, I think that showed a lot to my pitchers that they knew that I cared and I was invested, you know, 100%. How many more. times when you're watching a game do you go, why isn't he going out there to talk to him? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I with pitching coaches, you know, Will Will's called me up on the phone and said, You watching this game? And he goes, Yeah. And he goes, He's throwing 25 pitches and nobody's gone out to talk to him. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I wanted to weigh in on a couple little thoughts there. You know, one of the things for any of our young young coaches, old coaches, any coaches that are listening and players, um, when you do the work 
and you build a relationship as a coach and a catcher with your pitchers, um, there's a level of trust that to get that big pitch out of you. Uh, Mark, when you went out to talk and say, hey, let's throw a good sinker. Can you throw a good sinker down here? There's a level of trust that they know that's the right pitch in the right situation. So those are so, so important to develop. Um, and uh, that, that takes work. You know, people don't want – everybody wants everything instantly now, but it takes work to take the time to build relationships with your pitchers, with your catchers. Everybody's on the same page and everybody's pulling the rope the same way. And that's where tremendous things happen and tremendous successes happen. And then going back to the catcher-pitcher relationship, Mark and I worked with Lance Nichols, and I could remember Lance saying – telling his catchers when we were with the Orioles, Mark, that uh, the L goes next to your name as well when your pitcher doesn't win because you didn't do your job because you can get a guy through if you think your way through and you, you, you can help get a guy through a situation. So I think, you know, those were just little things that I wanted to weigh in on there. Jesse, I've got a question for you. As far as developing as a catcher, I mean, Will mentioned you were catching older pitchers. So that allowed you to see and feel things probably a little bit more quickly than some of the kids your age at the age of 14. But who were your role models as catchers uh, growing up and, and even when you got into the pro level? And what did you learn from some of them? You know, I was very lucky, David. I, you know, I had a huge poster over my bed of Gary Carter. I mean, he was my, old, my, my role model, my idol. And I got to work with him with the Mets later on in life. But um you know, growing up, I, I loved Tony Pena for his athleticism, who I got to work with and play with as a teammate. Uh, uh, but probably the biggest guy going through high school, and once I, I thought I, you know, I had a chance to play at the higher levels, was Michael Lavier. Uh You know, the first time I, I laid eyes on him, I was, I think I was 16 years old at Veteran Stadium in Philly. And I looked down at the field and I was like, wow, that guy, he kind of looks like me. You know, he was five foot nine, maybe you know, 180 pounds, left-handed hitter, and and really good. And he was a major leaguer. So I saw that, and I put that in my memory bank, and I followed his career through my, you know, early years through high school and college. And, and um, you know, it really pushed me, saying, hey, guy looks like me. I You know, I, I could do it too. Because, you know, growing up, I was always the shorter guy and, you know, strong, but always vertically challenged. Um, and when you were – being evaluated and scouted, you know, that mattered to scouts, you know, at the time. So, you know, seeing Michael Lavalier really was a, a huge influence on me uh, through my college years and early professional years. So that was that was one of the big guys. I like that. Who, who was the – you may not be able to reveal this because it, it may violate <laughs> the pitcher-catcher confidentiality here. But who was the most challenging pitcher? Like you knew you had to go out to the mound, but you didn't want any part of that. You know, like when I was in Cleveland early in my career, I, I got to catch some veteran guys like Orr Hershiser and uh, probably Dennis Martinez. Um, he had Tony Pena and Sandy Alomar ahead of me, and I was the third wheel. Um, so Dennis always looked at me and kind of like, you know, you're just a you know a rookie, you don't really know much, and <laughs> kind of pushed me put pushed me aside. So he was kind of probably the toughest guy, even though we got along. You know, I we just didn't. I didn't catch him very often, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, Dennis was a, a Dennis Tough. was different than most any pitcher I ever had because if Dennis, when he threw his sides, 
between starts, he would not throw strikes. He would borderline the ball just off the plate, both sides of the plate with his fastball and above the strike zone, below it. He would not throw a fastball for a strike. And he would throw all his changeups and curveballs for strikes. Right. And so, you know, when you're calling a game for this guy, because he's so different, you know, you're not used to sitting off the plate with your fastball, you know, for strikes. And he was right. one of the only guys. And what he used to do is if he got it called and he got the umpire comfortable off the plate, he didn't mind if they if if he if they didn't start calling it because he always had off speed pitches to throw in fastball counts right. for strikes. And that's why he was one of the toughest guys to score off of like bases loaded, no outs. Right. But he I was, can see where it would be tough catching Dennis as a rookie. Dennis pitched because of his command in and out of the strike zone. You know, that was probably his biggest strength. Right. He, he was a great pitcher, sure. Yeah. Now, when calling a game, what do you, how do you classify the most important thing, the scouting report, pitcher's strengths, or hitter's weaknesses? You know, I always went to my – you know, I kept a book on every hitter I ever, you know, sat behind in the big leagues and in the minor leagues, uh, Mark. But I'd have to say knowing the hitters and, and the pitcher's strengths, I mean, were very important to me. Also, uh, a big part of calling a game for me, Mark, was looking at the scoreboard. Scoreboard will tell you how to how to call the game usually, you know, and trying to simplify rather than overanalyze. So um, sometimes you have to be creative, though, as the catcher and go off the page sometimes, you know, because the best hitters that I've ever been around, Eddie Murray, Albert Bell, and, you know, some of the greats, they always hit off the catcher. They, they didn't necessarily hit off the pitcher. They hit yeah. off the catchers, like talking with them, and when we'd be in hitting meeting hitters meetings, and it was it was awesome, you know, to hear from the best of the best, and um, they they would hit off of me, so I needed to really be on my toes and not get in patterns, and you know, do the same thing, and I needed to really change it up and be on my toes. Yeah, that's that's a great call there. You know, one thing that I've seen happen in the playoffs this year that I've been watching, and I. I know I've talked to Will about it. Um, it's the pitcher's mentality. Sometimes throwing a strike overrides making a quality pitch. And right. I've seen so many guys get 3-2, and they throw a loop and breaking ball that gets hammered out of the ballpark. Right. Or they throw a fastball on too much of the plate, you know, because their priority was to throw a strike rather than get the guy out. And I've always said – we pitch to get outs. Even if it's 3-2, you're throwing a convicted, finished pitch, a pitch that you you complete. You know, you don't feather it into the strike zone. I've seen so many big home runs, three-run mm -hmm. home runs, grand slams on 3-2 counts where the guy was afraid to walk them. Hey, you're a pitcher. You can't be afraid to walk, guys. Absolutely, Mark. I 100% agree. Throwing that get-me-over-a-little-breaking-ball, you know, these hitters are trained to hit that ball up in the zone, and that just elevates the ball, and it goes out of the park, like you said. You know, it's funny. You'll start a, you have a really good breaking ball to your left side, and you're right-handed, and all of a sudden, I'm going to throw it at the hitter and make sure it's a strike with three-two, and the guy hits it out of the ballpark. You know, I'd rather have you walk the guy, honestly, right. as long as it's a good pitch and it was a good choice of pitches. Right. You know, I, I mean, think, uh, uh, no, go ahead, Jess, go ahead. No, I mean, like good hitters, like I remember Albert Bell, Mark, like he would, 
he would sit on a slider the whole bat. And if you threw three fastballs down the middle, he'd, he'd walk back to the dugout. But if you threw the slider, like he, he didn't miss it, you know, like it was amazing how, how great a hitter he was, you know, Albert. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, Manny Ramirez was that way with Cleveland. Yep. I've always told the story that Manny used to sit on a pitch to hold it back. Amazing. And he'd never take the bat off his shoulder if you threw something other than the pitch he was sitting on. And I went to Kansas City as the pitching coach when I left Cleveland. And I told my pitchers, I said, listen, <laughs> just watch. I said, if you throw a first pitch fastball and it's, you know, catches a lot of the plate and he just stands there, I said, he's sitting on your breaking ball. So just stay with fastballs. And we used to go through series against him, and we had no problem with Manny. Then as a years, a few years later, when he went to Boston, I think the first year he still did it, but then all of a sudden he used to switch in the middle of it at bat. That's and I amazing. used to tell the pitchers, I said, listen, that doesn't hold anymore. It doesn't work. He <laughs> yeah, says, you, you got to know me. these guys, yeah. yeah. He used they to go be pitch to pitch, Mark. These guys, these great hitters. It's not at bat to bat. It's pitch to pitch. Some of them, you know, yeah. you know, and some hitters will, you know, some hitters let you know what they're sitting at. I know Chad OJ in the World Series in '97. It was the sixth before the sixth game, and it was, it was, uh, you know, you have a workout the day before you're going to play, and he's sitting in the video, looking at the video, and I go, "What are you doing?" And he goes, "Mark, check this out," and it was. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, the guy with a real quick bat. Uh, Sheffield. Sheffield, yeah. And Sheffield, he says, look at Sheffield. He says, when he's sitting off speed, you know how he used to bounce his bat? You know how he used to have it up behind him and he used to point the barrel, at the pitcher, mm -hmm. you know, like go back and forth? He says, when he's sitting off speed, he goes slow. And when he's sitting fastball, he goes fast. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. He says – he said, he told me, he goes, he's got no chance tomorrow <laughs> because Chad had a great changeup. Great changeup. And, and Chad beat Devin Brown that you to take it to seventh game. He beat Devin Brown. And those are the kind of, that's yeah. how smart some pitchers are and how they look at how they can use things. Yep, definitely. Hey, funny about Sheffield, uh, Mark, him and Manny Ramirez, Mark, are the only two hitters I ever sat behind that I heard when they swung and missed at the pitch, I heard the bat going through the zone in a major league stadium. <laughs> it was sick. Him and Manny. Hey, Jesse, when you were behind the plate and you're, I know you, you, you got the whole field in front of you, you're paying attention to your pitcher, pitcher strengths, hitter's weaknesses. When you're taking a look at the hitter, what are some things that you notice pitch to pitch that may cause you to make an adjustment with how you're pitching from their from either their body posture to their feet to their hands? What are some things for our young catchers out there that you, you pay attention to? That's a great question, David. Um, I think when I would watch hitters, I'd watch to where they stood in the box. You know, a guy way, way deep in the box and far off the plate usually dove. You know, guys on the plate usually flew open a little bit. Um Flat back guys usually, to me, seem like they were better high ball hitters. Um, little things like that. I mean, they make adjustments too. They they creep up in the box. Some good hitters, on, you know, when they think they're going to see a lot of breaking stuff or off speed. Um, little things like that, David. I mean, great hitters got great hands. You know, great eyes. But um, most major league hitters have those qualities, um, and and they usually can hit a fastball, you know, 
it's it's just hard to cover both sides of the plate. So I I would have to say the 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 well commanded fastball is the best pitch in baseball to me. Still is. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, so uh, even though the analytics are making everybody throw all breaking balls. Right. Right. You know, Jesse, I I look back uh, at our days in Cleveland when we brought Gary Tuck in and and the little things that. You know, little signs that you and I had in, in game was was the guy on it, ahead of it, or behind it. You know, like sometimes you might not see if a guy fouled a ball off, you know, and, and we had our little hand signs. Or um, you were always good at noticing, hey, Will, you know, against like when Nagy was pitching, if somebody was moving up on the plate, trying to look outside for that good breaking ball that, you know, we ended up, you know, you would adjust back in and, and bust them inside. But Gary made you guys so aware of all the little things that were going to make you a good, good, you know, general as far as running the game. And, you know, I, I, I look back and I think of the impact that he had on you and Kelly Stinnett. And then he went over to the, you know, and then naturally, you know, Sandy and Cleveland as well. And then he went over to the Yankees and the impact he had with Posada. Then he went to the Red Sox, the impact he had with Veritek. How important all of those little things made those players, not just good players, but great players because they played on both sides of the ball. Yeah. I mean, Gary Tuck, you know, he kind of put me over the top, Will. Uh, You know, I was around great pitching coaches. You, I was around Mark. I was around great catchers and Tony Pena and Sandy Alomar which were all terrific, you know, and helpful to me. Um, but Gary Tuck, when he came into Cleveland, I, I only had him for maybe six or seven months, but it, it was a crucial part in my, my baseball career in double A. Um, I was a good player. I had a lot of talent, I thought, um, but I didn't know anything about taking charge of a game. You know, yeah. it was kind of mild mannered and, you know, more I would sit back rather than be aggressive on the field and the take charge guy. Gary had me drawing an X out in front of home plate, like from day one. And this is where we take charge from, you know, yeah. um, this is where we lead the team from. Not that guy behind the plate who, who's barely seen, you know, um, he made us all accountable. You know, yeah. I had him for six months and I was charting every game that I did. Uh, did I call a good game? Did I, what did I, what, what can I get better at in this game of calm pitches? How was my throws? Did I block the low ball? How was my framing? And he, he just had us have a book on our game, and we we were accountable. And, yeah, um, I, um, he, worked, he worked us so hard, Will, and I loved every minute of it. I was so yeah. fortunate to have Gary. I mean, you guys were out there at sunrise blocking balls, <laughs> yeah. and then because you guys had to catch so many bullpens in spring training, he would throw you guys BP, and I would come out sometimes and help because – you know, I wanted to make sure you guys got, you, you know, you guys worked so yeah. hard in spring training and, yeah. you know, like sure we got our swings. That's yeah. great. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I talked and, you know, it's funny. I talked to both you and Kelly Stinnett about this within the last five years. Well, you and I for a long time, but I uh, connected with Kelly a couple of years ago and he said, Without a doubt, you know, he's the guy that that helped get me to the big leagues. And Kelly and you both had great careers. And a lot of times guys don't get that opportunity. Uh, But because you were so good and a manager never had to worry about the day either one of you guys were catching. 
you know, yeah. which, which so, I think is a huge point for young catchers. Right. I mean, Gary was terrific. Well, I mean, he had us out early, he had us out late. I mean, he really had us believing, you know, and once you trusted Gary, I mean, he took it to the next level. It was, it's, it's like an art form. I mean, he was terrific. That's you right. know, and talking about that, you know, it's, uh, it goes another step. You know, what was your relationship with the pitching coach, bullpen coach and manager? You know, Mark, I, I, I mean, the managers that I had in the major leagues, I only had a few. I had Hargrove, I had uh, Phil Garner and Davey Lopes <laughs> were my managers in the big leagues. And I got along with all of them. You know, I mean, I, I don't think them being position players had a really good feel for the catching pitching um, relationship. So when when my pitchers would get hit around, they'd always come to me. They didn't they never went to the pitchers. And it was always my fault, you know when something went wrong. Um, but the pitching coaches was, it was different. I mean, I had, I had you, I had um, Will, I had Don Rowe in, uh, in Milwaukee, Skid Rowe, who was awesome. And uh, Louis Isaac as a bullpen coach, he was, he was always tremendous. Uh, Louis was a big help in my career as well. Um, you know, I got along, you know, I, it, it was a love-hate relationship. You know, when I did well, they loved me. And, you know, when I didn't, <laughs> sometimes they, I heard about it. But um, it, it, it was all good. I think I, I got along best with Phil Garner. I mean, he trusted me. He really liked me back there. And and um, he communicated that, that to me a lot. So, um, you know, it is what it is. I, I had a great, great time, great playing career. It was awesome. Did uh... – you know, as far as, you know, you became a scout, um, and I know you did some amateur scouting for pitchers and catchers as well as professional guys for right. trades or to acquire. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the things you look for in pitchers and catchers at the amateur level and then to the professional level? Probably the amateur level, Mark. Uh, pitchers first. I'd say, you know, arm action was important to me and pitchers, uh, their delivery. Is it clean? You know, those things that, that coming into pro ball can be a huge help. Um, not so much their command yet as, a, as an amateur, the pitchers, but, you know, velocity plays into it. Um, catching wise, I, I look for quick feet, uh, good hands, receiving the baseball, strong, soft hands, I always call it. Um, the take charge attitude. Uh, a high school college catcher, if they have that, that's, you know, a big part of the position for me. Um, arm strength is important for a catcher and um, how much he, he really is invested in his, his pitchers. You know, if he takes it, takes it hard when they get hit around or, you know, he doesn't really care. That means a lot too, makeup wise, uh, professional wise. I mean, you know, you got to produce uh, professional pitchers, a double a triple a, they got to start, putting their, their command together with the fastball? Are they able to spin the ball for strikes? Um, velocity for me was always like less on the, on the, on the chart. Um, I like command, spin the ball, you know, control. They were important to me. You know, the, uh, the thing is, I know that, that, you know, professional and amateur is a little bit different. Because you get, you know, you've got some guys that are set in their ways a little bit, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the, the one thing that I, 
it's always been disturbing probably the last 15, 20 years is the catchers have never called any pitches. All the coaches call them the high school, college. And so they're really behind the eight ball when they get into pro ball because we have to teach them all the things that Gary Tuck taught you. That's why we need we need more Gary Tucks in, in professional baseball to work with the young guys coming up because they've never learned how to call a game or, or notice any of the nuances. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's so important, uh, Mark. I mean, Gary really influenced a lot of great catchers and and um, it's very important to to get the experience, though, you know, to be in the game and, and be engaged, um, you know, calling the pitches and and talking to your pitching coaches about certain situations and and, you know, if a guy's on a pitch or he's not and read, read the bat, read the swings, you know, it's all great stuff. And it's, it's such a lost art. You know, like you said, they all are, are have their wristbands and their microphones in their ears. And, you know, I, I never experienced that at all. It was always, you know, learn from experience, have a book on my hitters day to day. I'm, I'm learning every day about different guys, my pitchers. I'm learning about all the hitters, new guys coming up. Um so, I mean, you know, I, I had to use my brain, you know, and think on the fly and, and, and make adjustments. And it, it was, you know, it was a, it's a lost art, like you, you were alluding to. But um, it's exhausting, you know, mentally, Mark, calling a, calling a game and, and going through a, a game at, every, at, at the college, professional, major league level. Yeah, it's exhausting. Well, it's, you know, it's, they, learn not to, they, they learn not to want to have responsibility. It's right. kind of like it, it reflects society. You know, a lot of young people don't want responsibility. They just want to just tell me what to do. I don't want to make decisions. Stand over here. Or be criticized. Nothing to do. Oh, I'm sorry. You, know, you know, one of the other things that Jesse did really well, uh, and I think, you know, why guys like Dave Duncan was a catcher that went on to be a good pitching coach and Les Moss uh, who end, ended up in the big leagues as a pitching coach and then a pitching coordinator as being catchers, was Jesse learned basic things about deliveries that made guys successful. You know, if Jeff Mutis was pitching and his head was flying open, Jesse would go right out and say, hey, Jeff, Jeff you got to slow down your front side, still up your head and see me. If it was uh, Rudy Cienez, and he threw three in a row up and into a right-hander. He, he went out and slowed his body down. Uh, if it was Charlie Nagy and Charlie was opening up too soon and his breaking ball flattened out or his sinker did, Jesse knew all, all the little nuances that we were teaching our pitchers to have their success, he knew. And he was able in-game watching the guy and go, oh, shoot, I got to get out there and go talk to him right now. And that's not – that hardly happens at all now where they have no idea. I think sometimes, you know, how important it is just to go out and, Hey, you know, slow yourself down, you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I agree. You, you know, you did such a good job at that, Jesse. And I, I wanted to make mention that's Thank another you. thing young catchers can learn is what makes your pitcher successful. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, when to go out there and, and talk to the guys and tell them to make a little adjustment. It's usually, it's small, you know, it's not major overhauls. It's just, Hey, you're flying open on your front side or, you know, stay closed a little bit more, keep that head still, you know? Yeah. 
yeah. straight. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, we had some great pitchers coming through the, the Indians organization when you and I were together, Will. I mean, I mean, Charlie Nagy, I mean, he was such a pleasure to catch like four pitches anytime, anywhere. Like he was, he was so fun to catch Charlie. I wish I got it. I could have played with him more. Well, you know, and, and, and I think back of Rudy and with him, because he was not real cerebral in his thought process, if he missed up and in, we just sat low and away and you would almost put your glove on the ground and that, and somehow it would slow his body down to get the ball down in the strike zone. And, and, you know, that ended up being a real good adjustment for him because he didn't want to have to think about all the stuff, you know, the one day in some one place where he told me kiss, you know, keep it simple, stupid. I said, yeah, throw the ball down in the strike zone. Then he was unhittable. He was way ahead of his time. Will with his hundred mile an hour fastball and unbelievable off speed stuff. Gosh, that year in Canton when he was closing and he come in, he was throwing a hundred on the old Ray gun. He was phenomenal. I think it was like 80 punch outs in 35 innings or something. And he had that 82 mile per hour, 12 to six curveball. Yeah, it fell off the table. My gosh, he was unhittable. He had a great career too, Rudy. He yeah, really yeah, he out. really did. Jesse, how'd you handle umpires? Did you keep a book on them as well? What was your communication? Because we again, we're talking from grassroots level all the way up to sure, pro guys that are listening, and <laughs> I see that all too often. My, I've got a young catcher in my house with, with my son, and we're going to spend some time with Tom Griffin this weekend out of Carson Newman. But um, what? What was your relationship like with umpires? What would you advise young kids, college kids, pro kids on how to handle that? And did you keep a book on them too? No, I mean, mentally, I never really had a – I mean, I knew the book on most of the umpires in the American League when I was in the league. Um, you know, I had a relationship with each one of them. You know, we would talk. We, you know, we would get to know each other and we would have we would communicate throughout the game, you know. Even if, you know, he, he, he rang me up on a pitch when I was hitting or whatever, but – it always it always stemmed back to the catching aspect, you know, as far as like getting along with him, getting the most out of my umpires as much as my pitchers, you know, um, how far can I go or off the plate and really communicating, though, and not being afraid to ask where a pitch was. And and um, for, for young kids, it's hard. It's hard sometimes, you know, they're the authority of the game and they're the police officers out there. But you got to you got to learn to communicate and talk to them and ask him, ask him a question, you know. Um, they're, they're, you know, some of them struggle from little league to the big leagues, you know, Dave. So, I mean, you know, you got to keep that in mind too, and not be too hard because, you know, I only got thrown out of one game and, and or one, one game in my whole minor league career. And after that, you know, I learned, uh, how to keep it quiet, you know, and, and know how far you can go asking guys, you know, and saying things, but, um, you know, you, you, that's, that's really all I can say about the umpires. I mean, you know, they, they try their best. They're under a lot of scrutiny now with that little box they show on the television every pitch, and it's very, it's very difficult for them. So, yeah. I was you know, one, of, uh, one of the other things on umpires, and unfortunately Jesse and I got to watch uh, for two years there in Canton, C.B. Buckner, who was the worst umpire in the league, and somehow he's still in the big league. Yeah, they're like judges, Will. They they never oh, are those yeah. guys. He got yeah. me in the big leagues too, Will, about three times, man. <laughs> yeah, he was, you know, he. Three punch outs. 
<laughs> we well, used to, vote, you know, we all the managers and coaches would vote who were the best umpires for the sure. league president. And he finished in last place every year. And the next year he was in triple A after 91. And I was like, you know, how's that happen? Yeah. Well, Needs to be a better system. Well, yeah. Like, just uh, like players, man, you, you, you got to be held accountable. He's still, he's, him and Angel are still missing calls. And I've I've had firsthand with Angel as a player and CV as a coach. So. Hey, uh, who was that little umpire in the American League? Who was old? He, he umpired the most games uh, from Milwaukee. Uh, uh, he was a real tough guy. Joe West? No, no, the short guy. Uh, darn it. <laughs> short guy. Whatever. Yeah, I can't remember who it was. He, he, I, I was asking him some pitches, asking like where some pitches were one time, and he came around home plate, like he, yeah, he was a lot older than me, and he said, Jesse, that plate has corners, and if he hits it, I'll call it. Now shut the hell up and oh catch wow, it. yeah, it wasn't Kaiser, it was uh, oh, man. oh. Froming, Bruce. Bruce Freming. Bruce Freming, yeah. He really laid into me one time. Oh, was, wow. I shut wow. my mouth well and didn't ask him any more questions. No. Freming was tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a different world. I mean, I some of the stuff, you must be amazed with the, the way the catchers actually show up, the umpires with trying to frame pitches that are 10, 10 inches off the plate. And the way guys look at umpires now, there's a lack of respect there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, like if I were to do that with Freming, he probably would have thrown me out of the game. Like trying to frame a a pitch that was off the plate, you know, like he was. I mean, I I remember one day I was backing up home plate when I was pitching and the umpire said, if your catcher tries to pull another ball six inches off the plate, you'll never get another pitch in your life. So I called the guy. I go, whoa, knock it (laughs) off. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. These guys, they they took it personal. Yeah. Yeah. what do you wave. Soon, soon they'll have the computer umpire and then they won't have to talk to anyone. That's right. <laughs> Jesse, what are your thoughts on the one knee catching that's become prevalent? Oh, man, that really pisses me off, Dave. Um, I think we're training a lot of lazy catchers nowadays, Dave. I mean, I, I, I scouted JT Real Muto and some of the better athletic catchers back there that, that I've seen lose games, like lose games, last pitch of the game, wild pitch, game over that I can't believe ever happens in the major leagues, you know, even in college, you know. So, I mean, that that's really frustrating to watch as an ex-catcher and, and, and a catching instructor myself who I take a lot of pride in teaching. Um, I think they're becoming lazy and, you know, framing pitches is very important. I, there's no doubt. And that was very important to me. But blocking the low ball, throwing runners out, calling a great game, catching pop-ups, it was all important. You know, I mean, uh, the one knee stuff, I, I just think they're lazy. They're they're training lazy catchers nowadays. And, you know, I framed as well as anybody. You know, you can ask any of the umpires that, that sat behind me, and, and it meant a lot, and I worked on it a lot. But uh, blocking the low ball was just as important, Dave. So don't let, don't let anybody tell you that one knee stuff is, uh, you know, the way to go. I'm with you. I got my my. I keep my son off the one knee. I think blocking balls gives the pitcher confidence that they can they can you know throw one low Absolutely. and out of the strike zone, and you're going to keep it in front of them. So. Absolutely, especially with the game on the line. Yeah. Like when I made a, a game saving block in the last inning, like that was as good as getting a hit for me. I felt like I just got a base hit. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the top coaches, they, they, they understand, and pitchers see that. Oh, the confidence as a pitcher, and uh, Cal Sr. used to say, oh, wow. you know, you get two strikes, bury it and block it. He'll block right. it. Don't worry. Right. You know, you bury that breaking ball in the dirt. You get him to chase that strike the ball right. out of the strike zone, and you don't have to worry. It's not going to go by him. Right. But that's Thank not you. the case anymore. You know, like I I told Jesse, we would talk jokingly when we were scouting. Half of these guys, I could pick them out of a lineup. I've seen their face so many times from the past fall scout. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're chasing them back to the backstop. Yeah, exactly. Oh, look, uh, there's that guy. He's he's some of these guys are so athletic. Well, they could probably be off the charts, amazingly blocking balls. You know, exactly, exactly. So Gary Tuck is involved. Or you know, guys like Gary. Oh yeah make their point so or you now <laughs> i wish yeah i wish i That's could right. that that would be an impact somewhere i know we need people like jesse we need people like jesse in baseball to to take it where it needs to go yeah without a doubt we know we talked a lot about the physical aspects of it the mental the communicative aspect of it where, where do you where do you see analytics in helping pitchers and catchers <laughs> Oh man, uh, I I think we had game plans all the way back to the beginning of my career, probably way back into your careers too, guys. So I mean, we always had plans, you know, and, and percentages and 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 different right left, you know, matchups. Um, I think it's 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 driven a lot of you know good ex players out of the game. Actually, analytics. I mean, some of the coaches I've talked to and ex players. I mean. They, they just don't get it. I mean, um, I think there's a place. I mean, you know, the percentages and the numbers, they, they can help. Um, but I'm, I'm not a big proponent of it, Mark. I, I'm, I, I was a believer in paralysis from analysis. And if I had way overloaded information, I think I would have really, you know, fried my brain and it, it would have hurt me more than it helped me. I like to simplify things and you know, baseball is a tough game. It looks easy because, you know, a lot of these players make it look easy, but it's a hard game at that, that, that highest level. And um, sometimes I think the guys are thinking way, way too much, you know, instead of reacting. Right. Um, so, I mean, well, I, you know, I'm well, not, a, I'm not a big uh, believer in, in analytics right now, Mark. You know, you know, it's so funny because they act like it's a new thing. And, <laughs> and when I was coaching, you know, when we had that bat system and and, mm-hmm. and, and edge, what was it, inside edge or whatever, um, that was the most I needed. That, that gave me any information I want. I could pull up anything I really needed. Right. And because of my background, uh, and like yourselves, you know, we knew what was important and what really was, what wasn't important. I we didn't really need. You know, right. like if you're looking and you're trying to figure out how to pitch to Pujols, in his heyday, you know, I used to go over those inside edge reports and I look at the strike zone on him and I, he was like 350, 450, 500, 300, 320, 330, 340, every section. The only pitch, the only area that he was weak in at that time of his career was a breaking ball at him to the plate in the bottom quadrant, in the third, <laughs> inner, inner third, breaking ball at him. And not and, every pitcher can execute that, right, Mark? Not every pitcher can execute that. You know, you got to try. I mean, the next best thing is to change speeds. Right. You change speeds, 
you get a lot of great hitters don't like to be their timing off. Right. You know, Jim Tomey used to say the toughest pitch to hit is a changeup. I said, why? He says, there's nothing I can detect. There's nothing I much different than a fastball. Right. You know, well, I can tell you a story about Pujols. That's why I brought it up. I had A.J. Burnett, who had a good breaking ball. He had probably the easiest fastball, 97, you could get. Look looked like he's playing catch. <laughs> and uh, we were going to face the Cardinals. And uh, Pujols was, like, on fire. And I said, listen, we get our back against the wall or something. I said, let's don't use it, but let's practice this front door breaking ball. Because he had a good breaking ball. Yeah. And I said, let's practice it and practice it and practice it. And I said, and you'll only throw it with two strikes on him, you know, at a crunch time. Mm-hmm. So the second time through the order, we got two outs, bases loaded, and Pujols is up. And Paul LaDuke is catching. I think it was Paul. Maybe not. Maybe Trainer, Matt Trainer. Anyway, so I go, uh, they look over because we talked about it before the game. I said, oh, this is the one guy. This is the one pitch. I said, you've been practicing. You know you can do it. So he gets two strikes on him, and he throws it and locks him up for <laughs> a third out. Wow. It comes in the dugout. And I said, see, sometimes you can practice stuff that actually works in a game. <laughs> That's you know, beautiful. But it was, he was the most amazing guy to look at on those charts. But we going back, we had those things. And, oh, you had to punch it in, and you had video of every account. You know, by the time I retired from pitching coaching, I, I remember you could put in any scenario. It could be a day game on an 0-2 count. Uh, you know, you could uh, right-handed hitter or this particular pitcher against this particular hitter, and you could hit it, and it would show every video of that count on a day game uh, against that pitcher. So yep. what else? You, you don't need any more analytics than that, do you? I mean, <laughs> no. the pitching coaches, I just go through the lineup. like watch their two weeks prior to them playing us. We just got to remember, Mark, I think it's it's still a game. It's not not a science experiment, you know. It's, it's still a great game. But those yeah. heat the, those heat zone maps are really pretty in the red and blue. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was funny. Greg Luzinski tweeted during the Phillies <laughs> games yesterday. He said, put down your damn iPads and watch the game. <laughs> I know. I saw that in the dugout, too, Will. They were all I, you know, the, watching the pitcher. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the game tells you what to do all the time if you watch it. They're playing game. video games. Those are the analytics guys. Video. Yeah. <laughs> It's a video game. That's all it is. You throw five pitches right up here at the top of the strike zone, four seam fastballs. This guy, you get him out all day. Well, they they don't realize that major league hitters can adjust to it. Right, know? right. Real I people. Mean, I, in saw, there. I saw Greg Swindell strike out uh, Bo Jackson twice in a row on three pitches each at bat on fastballs up and out. You remember? Remember, he used to have this fastball that yeah. had. To it, it was up about 90 miles an hour. It looked like it was a hundred because nobody could hit it. They'd swing through it, it as up and out to a right-handed hitter. Life. Yeah. And uh, he comes up the third time, and Charlie Manuel's the hitting coach, and he says, "He goes, oh no." And I go, "What?" And he goes, "Mark." He raised his hands up. He's waiting for that high fastball. <laughs> Next pitch, he hit it about 500 feet. Well, uh, Hoskins did that last night. You know, he went up there and 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 he got on top of one. You know, that's the other thing during the playoffs. I think four times yesterday, 
I saw guys take cock shot cement mixer breaking balls with two strikes for strike three, and I'm going. I know. If, I mean, you know, good hitters hit that ball hard that we played with when we played. Now you you have to not be looking for that at all to right. not swing at that. When it's mid-thigh right down the middle of the plate, Yep, I think I saw four of them yesterday, and I just I, it it amazes me that that their mind was crippled to the point that they weren't looking just for to stay alive in that point, you know. Right. Yep, and well, battle and that ball up. You see the teams that do that, that battle, that cut their swings down, try to shoot the ball. You know, they might go for the gusto the first two strikes. Yeah, when yeah. they shoot. Then they run the the bullpen guys out there throwing ten pitches per at bat. Right. And when those guys throw it, you know they don't like. You don't like to give bullpen guys too many pitches for responsibility. <laughs> you know when they go ten pitches on one batter, now their time's running out, and there's they have a lot better chance of making a mistake. Right. Yep. A lot of rock throwers, Mark. Yeah. We've had Jesse here for almost an hour now, and we appreciate your time, Jesse. You've been very generous with it and great stuff for our listeners. Do you have any uh, last questions for him before we, we allow him to move on? No, I think as far as I'm concerned, I think we covered a lot of good stuff, Jesse. All I know is that, you know, I got to work with you some, but like you said, I had Alomar and Pena, then Borders came in there. Um, you know, we had – Jesse, you tell about all the guys that were catchers in the Cleveland organization that time that had a lot of years in the big leagues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great times there, Mark. I mean, I, I was there from 89 to 95, and, you know, I, I didn't want to leave, but it was a great thing for me to get traded and have an opportunity to play at the major league level. And when I got to Milwaukee, I didn't look around and see an all-star at every position, and I had a lot of confidence going into my uh, my second career with the, the Brewers. So uh, that that was a huge help. My uh, my time in Cleveland was was the best. You know, I'm, I'm we had we had you and we had Stinnett and we had Diaz and we had all these catchers Loaded. that had a lot of time in the big leagues. And we had and you guys couldn't break into the major leagues for any real length of time. Yeah, I mean circumstance, you know, Mark. I mean that's why you look around the league. That's what kept me going for so long, you know, Mark. Like. Man, I know if I was drafted by this club, I'd be there, and I would have more time and this and that. And I just knew, you know, if you if you persevered and you worked hard, and your chance is going to come, you know. And and we had a lot of great great players and great catchers to right place, right time, opportunities. They're all factors that people don't realize. You know, I think Mike Boddicker got his his opportunity because the Orioles had like three double headers in September. Right. Um, in one week. So they had to call somebody up and he never went back after that. I mean, Cleveland yeah. was loaded though, back in the early, late, early nineties. I mean, drafting guys and, and Johnny Gorel, like even, I didn't mention him much in this conversation, yeah. but he, he was, was the fabulous. Johnny made you accountable, you Everybody. know? Yeah. It was, he was the greatest. He, I got to thank him a few years ago. He was 85 years old and, yep. and I got to thank him and tell him how much, it meant, you know, all those times where he yelled at me and got on me. It really made me made me a better player and better person. Yeah, he was your he was the last lot of that player development for sure. Yeah, there's there's yeah, not many was, of those floating around anymore. I'm sure. No, no. No well, you know they they you know you you hurt the people's feelings. They tell the 
they tell the general managers and the general managers back the, the, mm. the agents and the player yeah. over somebody like Johnny that all he's trying to do is make them better and made hundreds and hundreds of thousands, actually thousands of players better. Right. Right. You know, you know, you know, he he coached me. He was my double A manager. Wow. wow. A lot of guys said we end up being coaches together on the Cleveland club. Yep. But years went by. He actually taught me my sinker and he was not a pitching guy. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, he said, Mark, he's got a good curveball, but he says, your fastball's really straight. He says, you ever try holding it? And he'd, he'd say, you know, I talked to early win, and he told me, if you want to throw a sinker, you might want to hold it this way. Why don't you try that? So I tried it, and it worked. I go, hey, that's great. I told Mullion, no pitching coach gave me a sinker. You gave it to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. Jesse, what was your proudest moment as a pro ball player? I know it's like asking who your favorite child is, but <laughs> give, us, give us one to close out the show here. And what was what was your proudest moment? You know, David, I had a lot of good, great moments in, in playing the game, but, you know, it wasn't when I was playing. It was probably being a part of that 95 championship team in Seattle when they clinched the American League pennant. I mean, being on the field and jumping up and down with the guys that I grew up with in baseball and, and, uh, kind of being my almost my graduation party <laughs> going to the next team so that that was really I was really proud of that achievement and uh, I wear that ring still proudly even though it's a it's just an AL championship ring and it meant it means so much to me so what tells a lot about you your proudest moment is about winning and I think a lot of the kids in the audience can can take that where today is it's it's very much individual it's it's getting into that look at me and I like yeah. to see baseball go back to that team attitude. I think your answer was perfect. I think it's a, a great message to end on. And Will, Mark, great show again today. Will, you want to end on something here? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, I want Jesse to tell us about his uh, <laughs> twin sons who are uh, really good good young ball players. And I know he's he's uh, at home, been de- doing some development. And just tell us a little bit about your two sons and your family too, Jess. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, three children. My daughter's 22. That's Lily. She's in grad school uh, studying occupational therapy. So uh, we'll have a, an occupational therapist here pretty soon to go along with mom, who's a physical therapist, Joan. Uh, my two sons are, are twin boys. Uh, they're seniors in high school. One's a catcher, took after his pop. And uh, the other's a middle infielder who, who can run and, and is way more athletic than his pop. Uh, he is left-handed. Uh, the, the catcher's going to Bloomsburg. He got a scholarship there, so he's going to catch uh, at the next level, and he's really excited. And uh, Jared, Jared is the uh, middle infielder. He's still searching. He's closing in on a school, and uh, it's going to be exciting watching these kids awesome. uh, play at the next level, Will. So, uh, yeah, don't blink, Jesse. It goes by fast, I'm telling you. <laughs> I hear you. I know, Will. You know, uh, guys, thanks for a great show. That was, that was good to hear about the boys. I've got a catcher and a middle infielder, too, so you'll have to counsel me as they get older. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. beautiful thing. Like Will said, don't blink. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were just seven years old, and I was working with them. So. And we'll have to reach out to you about the catcher here. We're heading up to see Tom Griffin at Carson Newman. Thanks to, to Will's relationship with him and, and beautiful. Get a little work in this weekend. So, guys, thanks again. Great show. Jesse, thanks for, for giving our audience a treat today. It's episode 66, Coach and Current Podcast Network. Common Sense Pitching, A Day at the Yard with Wiley and Will. It's our seventh installment of it. Guys, great job today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks, Jesse. Pleasure, guys. Great interview, Jesse.